Welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast. I'm your host, Linda Cherry. We hope you've been enjoying our podcasts and the unique perspective that each of our six authors bring to the Come Follow Me curriculum for this year. If you have been enjoying them, we suggest that you click the subscribe link below this video and also while you're at it, click on the bell and then you will receive notifications each time a new podcast is posted. And then while you're at it, we would love it if you left a comment about this podcast or any others, any questions you have and any specific topics that you would like us to cover in the future. We're so grateful for your time and for your support. This week, we're going to be studying Genesis 6 through 11 and Moses 8, which have the very unique stories of Noah and the flood and Nimrod and his tower at Babel. Moses 8 starts with the information that poor Methuselah watched as his family and friends uh, left on Zion, and he was left on the earth to live with the people who were falling into deeper and deeper corruption. Enoch had obtained the promise from the Lord that someone from his posterity could fill the role that Noah was going to uh, play in this great mission. And Methuselah, as Enoch's son, is the one who was elected to stay on the earth. I can't even begin to imagine how challenging that must have been for him. In fact, as we begin our story in Genesis 6 and Moses 8, uh, we read in Genesis 6 that the sons of God were marrying the daughters of men. And in uh, Moses 8, it tells us the opposite way that the daughters of God were marrying the sons of men. And so we might ask ourselves why this introduction and, and what does this have to do with about with what's about to occur uh, with Noah's calling and the flood. But then when we realize and think about the fact that what is happening is that the children of the covenant are marrying outside of the covenant. And as is warned in uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter seven, in that marrying outside of the covenant, their hearts are caught up with other gods and they leave behind the anchors that have been so valuable and precious to the mothers and fathers who have gone before. In fact, as they loose themselves from the covenant, uh, the scripture tells us that their hearts and their thoughts are turn to evil imaginations continually. So this anchor, this tie to the Lord and to his covenant seems to preserve people from taking this great dive into uh, this kind of corruption. Brian Reedy, our teacher for today, will um, talk about the violence that was occurring uh, during Noah's time and the fact that today we also live in a world and a society that seems to enjoy violence in movies and video games and just even out on the streets as we watch the news. And Brian will talk about the remedies at hand um, in order to um, overcome and resist this violence that leads to such destruction of the soul. And in fact, we might say that it is so important as uh, shown through uh, Noah and his family that one maintain their covenants and follow the prophet as the only path of safety through a world that is so set on violence. Now, um, 
We are going to uh, talk, as I mentioned, about both Noah and the flood and also about uh, Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. But I wanted to share just a little background about a couple of points to these stories that seem particularly unusual to us and some help that's been offered by some of the scholars of our day and of ancient times. And one of that, one of those first stories is the story that describes Noah as having partaken of some wine and laying naked in a tent and that his son Ham comes in and uncovers his nakedness and that Noah as a result uh, curses Ham's son Canaan. And all of this just seems to be confusing and we might say even alarming uh, without some further detail and understanding of what might have been going on. Uh, one of the great uh, scholars of our day is Jeffrey Bradshaw, and he has written a number of articles on this event uh, uh, with Noah and his family for the Meridian magazine. And I'm going to include a link to that in the comments below so that you can uh, read uh, Brother Bradshaw's uh, uh, theories and uh, teachings for yourself. But um, Brother Bradshaw points out that in the original language of the scriptures, when it says that Noah was in his tent, um, that his is not referring to Noah's tent, but his is referring to Yahweh's tent. And um, Brother Bradshaw points out that this would be what would be thought of as a tabernacle. Um, it's called the tent of meeting. And um, ancient Jewish teachers refer to this tent as um, the tent of Yahweh or the tent of God. And that in fact, uh, the wine that Noah had partaken of was part of a ritual ordinance where Noah had uh, gone to commune with God within the Holy of Holies of that tent. And that in doing so, um, he had also removed his outer garment, just as we will see uh, the high priest do um, after the tabernacle and temple is constructed by Moses in the wilderness, uh, before going into the Holy of Holies, the high priest was to remove his outer garments. In fact, they're called the glorious garments of the uh, high priesthood. And interestingly enough, what many of these rabbinical writers have surmised is that actually the garment that Noah had removed is um, the garment of the priesthood that had been passed down from Adam to each of the patriarchs. Uh, so now the story starts to look quite different to us. If we think that Noah has gone into the tent of meeting to meet with God, and in fact, Joseph Smith adds his testimony to the story by telling us that Noah was not drunk, but Noah was in vision. So what is now happening with Ham that causes Noah to be so distressed that Ham's son Canaan is cursed as a result? Well, it's believed that what happened is that Ham had walked in uninvited and unworthily into the Holy of Holies, and that the uncovering was not only of his father in vision, but that he had uncovered God in speaking with, with Noah face to face in the same way that he has spoken uh, with Moses and other prophets. And not only this, but um, it is believed that Ham had gone in and taken 
that priesthood garment from his father, Noah, where Noah had set that aside. Now, what is particularly of interest to us here is um, this is just the first of many stories uh, we are going to run into about um, jealousy and resentment between brothers over who is going to have the birthright or the right to the priesthood. There is so much more to this story than meets the eye. We often think, oh, it's so unfair because this particular son is going to get all of the wealth of his father. But in fact, the, um, the birthright was, uh, as we shall see as, as we go forward in our Old Testament study, the birthright was always given not to uh, the order of birth, but to the son who is born again and seeks to make a covenant with God and have his own covenant relationship with God. We will see this in the story of Jacob, and we'll see it in the story of Jacob's son, Joseph. We also see it in the story of Nephi and his older brothers, uh, that those who are seeking after righteousness and commit themselves to God are the ones who end up with the uh, the priesthood leadership of the family. Now, in addition, this wasn't where the priesthood uh, leader gets everything and the other sons get nothing, but rather that the birthright son had the sacred obligation to look out for his whole family. Uh, this would be to all of their needs, both temporal and spiritual. Now, when we consider uh, what uh, Brother Bradshaw and the rabbis are teaching us about this particular story, it starts to fall into place when we see that connected in the very conversation that Noah has where his grandson Canaan is cursed. Um, at the same time, Noah is emphasizing that Shem is going to be the um, birthright priesthood leader. And in fact, uh, Noah says that Canaan, Ham's son, would be a servant um, to uh, both his brothers, Japheth and to Shem. And that while Japheth would prosper and have abundance, he would nevertheless be under the protection of Shem. So this specific language is alerting us to the fact that this is a priesthood stewardship that is given to Shem to care for all of his family, which at this point means all of the people on the earth. Now, why Canaan cursed? Uh, this is an interesting uh, question that we might have and might not be fully uh, preserved or um, understood by us in that um, Ham undoubtedly was planning that he was going to give this priesthood garment that he believed would then give the priesthood authority to his son Canaan. And, and uh, Noah is in fact saying, the priesthood is not going to go through Ham, but rather the priesthood is going to go through Shem. Now, the Old Testament uh, student manual for the Institute um, suggests that there are a number of ancient writings that state that Shem is actually Melchizedek. And so when we consider what we know and love about Melchizedek and his priesthood leadership in building his city of Salem and um, also his role with Abraham, then we begin to have an understanding of how much Ham may have been 
setting to um, upset the balance of what was meant to happen and for the four ordained missions for each of these men. And I hope that as we uh, know these little background details, it helps us to have a greater respect for Noah and a little bit less anxiety over what was being described. So once again, um, is that the scholars believe that Noah was in Yahweh's tent or a tabernacle and that he was in vision and in fact was not drunk, as Joseph Smith tells us, but instead had partaken of a ritual um, uh, wine in a, in a ritual of ordinance that would possibly be uh, akin to partaking of the sacrament. That he had removed his outer robe, um, likely the uh, robe of the priesthood that had been passed down from Adam, and that Ham had sought to usurp that for himself and his sons by literally taking that robe, and that um, therefore uh, the curse, um, and we have uh, quite a bit of uh, anxiety once again when we hear about curses in the scriptures, we think of the curse of Cain or the curse of Laman and Lemuel. Uh, the important thing to remember about those curses that can shed some light on this curse uh, was that in both cases of Cain and Laman and Lemuel, the curse was to be separated from God. And so um, it's not that God is ejecting them. We, we, we need to remember that um, anyone who comes onto, God, onto Christ, anyone who comes onto God uh, with a pure heart is accepted by him but rather that um, Ham's act seems to um, show us something deeper within Ham's own family and their motivations. And in fact, we might see that as we go on to the story of Nimrod, uh, Nimrod is in fact a grandson of Ham. So it's important for us to have that context as we um, talk about Babel and what happened there. When we remember that, uh, as we have just discussed, that no priesthood was to come through Ham's line. And so this would include Nimrod. Now, um, Nimrod was building the Tower of Babel at the same time that Melchizedek was establishing his city of Salem. And Melchizedek established that city upon the principles of Zion. And in fact, he pointed his people towards Zion and urged them to live worthily of Zion so that we read in the scriptures that many of Melchizedek's people were actually caught up to Zion. Now contrast that to, um, to Nimrod, who believes that he is going to build a tower to heaven, and perhaps he might have been interpreting heaven as Enoch City Zion, which was surely still being spoken of um, not these many years after that event took place. And now we're told in our Old Testament student manual that Nimrod was quite an evil man, and uh, Joseph Smith changes the translation of uh, the Genesis uh, 10 account that tells us that uh, Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Joseph Smith changes that to say he was a mighty hunter in the land. The Old Testament student manual uh, tells us that a number of the ancient writings say that Nimrod actually made a practice of hunting men and that he specifically taught his people that they were to shun the religion and the teachings of Shem who, as maybe was Melchizedek, that they were specific, specifically to turn away from Shem's teachings. 
Again, all of this is in the Old Testament student manual, and I will share that link with you um, in the comments below. And so um, in addition to Nimrod's other uh, failings, uh, it's uh, believed that Nimrod tried to kill Abraham on many occasions, including when Abraham was a child. And each time Abraham was delivered out of Nimrod's hands. Now, some of these ancient accounts tell us that Nimrod was building this tower because he specifically wanted to go up and fight the God of Abraham, who had continuously rescued uh, Abraham. And so in this whole, uh, uh, manner of being, Nimrod said to his people, let's make a name for ourselves. Now, this is another very important uh, language decision on his part. When we think of what it means to make a name for oneself, think of how the city of Zion was named as they became a covenant people, and that Zion means of one heart and one mind, and no poor among them. Think of King Benjamin and his people when King Benjamin said, I'm going to teach you about the covenant, and then I'm going to give you a name. And the name that King Benjamin's people received was the name of Jesus Christ, and they became the children of Christ, as Benjamin told them that they had been born anew in Christ. Now, in complete counterfeit opposition to that, uh, Hugh Nibley tells us that uh, that Nimrod had a false kingship and a false priesthood, and the name that he was seeking to make was under an evil covenant, and that um, these people were going to be uh, known for being rebellious and for fighting against God. Uh, as we consider these uh, thoughts, in addition to the fact that Nimrod declared that if God were to become angry at him and, and put another flood upon the earth, that this tower would be so tall that uh, Nimrod would uh, triumph over any flood, anything that God could do. You can see why these people were in a state that um, there could be no hope for any future generations. They had completely departed from the covenant teachings. They had completely um, departed from God and their hearts were set on, on um, evil and revenge and violence. And, um, and so now we understand why it is that the Lord felt that they needed to be scattered and their language uh, changed. It's also interesting to note that the Old Testament student manual tells us that Nimrod's um, Babel was the first dominion called a kingdom uh, in the Old Testament world. And what makes this particularly interesting is that it is later Babylon that is built in the same location. And the kingdom of Babylon is uh, looked upon as the symbol of great wickedness and evil and the worldly empire. In fact, as we compare the description in the book of Revelation of Babylon, where Babylon has made a practice of selling men's souls, uh, we see that we have this same continual evil teaching that comes from the source of Satan uh, through Nimrod and then many centuries later into the kingdom of Babylon and even to our time today. Now, our teacher today is Brian Reedy, and again, um, he is going to be teaching Genesis 6 through 11 and Moses 8.
Uh, Brian is the author of the book, Crossing the Divide, which is the story of his personal conversion. Brian is a former Protestant minister, and he tells an incredible story uh, today about how he was actually teaching about Nimrod and the Tower of Babel when he heard the voice of the Lord tell him that he must leave that congregation and join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Brian's story is very compelling and will draw all of us into it. Again, we thank you so much for um, sharing your time with us and remind you to please leave a comment or any questions and to subscribe. Thank you so much. Hello, as Linda just told you, my name is Brian Reedy. I'm excited to be a part of Cedar Fort's Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast this year. In this season, we are going to cover Genesis chapter 6 through 11 and Moses chapter 8. We will be focusing on the stories of Noah and the Tower of Babel. Since there is so much material to cover, we are going to start with the outline provided in the Come Follow Me Sunday School Manual, and then we will look at some additional themes found across the chapters in Genesis and Moses. We're going to start by answering the question, who was Noah? Noah was a direct descendant of Enoch and Seth. His father's name was Lamech. Genesis 5.29 says Lamech named his son Noah, which name means rest, saying, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Noah stood out among his contemporaries. Genesis 6, 8 through 9 says that Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord, that Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. Why was Noah this way? Why did he find favor with God? I think the answer is also found in verse 9. Noah walked with God. Noah had an intimate relationship with God. God did not pick Noah because, in the words of Mary Poppins, he was practically perfect. We will learn in Genesis 9 that Noah was very imperfect. He was just as flawed as the rest of us. God rarely calls practically perfect people. He calls flawed people to help other flawed people find him and follow him. Noah was also a prophet. God called him to preach his gospel. The apostle Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 5. Moses 8, 16, and 23 tells us that Noah prophesied, taught the things of God, and preached to the people. God also called Noah to warn the people. One of the obvious ways he warned the people was by building an ark. God also established a covenant with Noah. Now, let's look at the outline and come follow me. The first section is entitled, Follow the Prophet. Several years ago, my wife and I were leading a Bible study uh, for a group of young adults. We were going over the story of Noah, and one of the students asked, why did God kill all those people? As I was pondering a long theological answer, my wife simply said, all they had to do was get on the boat. And she was right. Not a soul would have perished had they simply given heed to the words of the prophet Noah. In Moses 8, 23 through 24, Noah says, Hearken and give heed unto my words. Believe and repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, even as our fathers. And ye shall receive the Holy Ghost, that ye may have all things made manifest. And if ye do not this, the floods will come upon you. Nevertheless, they hearken not. 
Imagine Noah was your neighbor, and all of a sudden, he starts building a giant boat in his backyard, and he starts preaching that you need to repent. If you weren't sensitive to the Holy Spirit, you would probably think he was crazy, and that is exactly what happened. The Come Follow Me Sunday School Manual has a quote by Elder Neil Maxwell, who explained that at the time of the Great Flood, corruption had reached an agency-destroying point that spirits could not in justice be sent here. How did that happen? Well, the people's hearts became hardened. Let me give you an illustration. When I was a younger man, I used to love to play the guitar. When I first started practicing, the, finger, the strings would cut into my fingers and make them sore. Over time, I developed calluses on my fingers, and I didn't feel the strings cutting in any longer. Many of you have developed calluses through playing instruments or physical work or exercise, and you know what that's like. It's also important to know that your soul can develop calluses as well. Every time the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins, he pricks our heart. He pricks our conscience. If we resist those pricks, over time, a callus will develop on our heart, and we can no longer feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Once we stop feeling conviction, we lose the ability to repent, and we are trapped forever in our sins. This was the fate of the people in Noah's day. In Genesis 6-3, the Lord says, my spirit shall not always strive with man. One of the definitions of the Hebrew word for strive is to plead. God will not always plead with us to repent and return to him. There is a finite period for men to respond to the gospel. That is why it's so important for us to follow the teachings of the prophet. The teachings of the prophet are a conduit through which the Holy Spirit can convict us and enable us to repent. The teachings of the prophet also tell us where the safe place is. The only safe place to be when the judgment of God fell in Noah's time was the ark where the prophet dwelt. The only safe place to be when God's judgment in, falls in our time will be the ark where the prophet dwells, the church of Jesus Christ. And make no mistake, it's coming. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 37 through 39, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also be the coming of the Son of Man. Genesis 6, 12 through 13 says the earth was filled with violence and it was corrupt. The word corrupt occurs three times in Genesis 6, 11 through 13. It means to ruin or spoil like a good piece of fruit that's gone bad. The repetition of this word is a way of emphasizing the degree in which the corruption had permeated society. Hebrew doesn't really use comparative or superlative adjectives. They demonstrate comparative and superlative forms through repetition. For instance, in Isaiah 6.3, the seraphim declare that God is holy, holy, holy. By repeating this word three times, they are using it in a superlative sense. There is none holier than God. By repeating the word corrupt in Genesis 6, 11 through 13, the Lord is saying that things have gotten as bad as they could be. The word violence means severe treatment of another person, including mental, physical, and emotional harm. Instead of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with good things, Genesis 6, 9 says, 
that they filled the earth with violence. It certainly seems that our world is becoming more and more corrupt and filled with violence. Given the similarities between our days, it is ever important that we take careful heed to, to the words of the prophet, and we mustn't put it off. We cannot risk our hearts becoming hardened to the extent that Noah's generation had become, and we can't wait for the rain to start falling in our story. In our story of the Old Testament, rain is the method of God's judgment. We must be in the ark before God's judgment starts falling in our era. Otherwise, it will be too late. Elder W. Don Ladd of the 70 gave a talk in the October 1994 General Conference entitled, Make the Ark." Elder Ladd said, quote, when it starts raining, it is too late to begin building the ark. However, we do need to listen to the Lord's spokesman. We need to calmly continue to move ahead and to prepare for what will surely come. We need not to panic or fear, for if we are prepared spiritually and temporally, we and our families will survive any flood. Our arks will float on a sea of faith if our works have been steadily and surely preparing for the future. The key is to the accept the invitation of our prophet, to live with ever more attention to the life and example of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially the love and hope and compassion he displayed, end quote. Now, the next section in Come Follow Me is entitled, Tokens or Symbols Help Us Remember Our Covenants with the Lord. Eventually, it was time for Noah to gather his family and all the animals into the ark, and the Lord closed the hatch. Then in the words of the primary song, the rains came down and the floods came up. I know, a different Bible story. But if it's Noah and his family were in the ark for five months. And then we read in Genesis 8, but God remembered Noah. Now, God hadn't forgotten about Noah. This isn't the same language one would use if you were driving home and all of a sudden you remember you need to pick up the kids from school. This is covenant language. It goes back to God's promise in 618 that he would establish a covenant with Noah. The expression remembered does not mean simply calling to mind. It means that God is keeping his promise. In Genesis 9-1, the Lord says, And behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. According to Old Testament scholar Dr. Kenneth Matthews of Beast and Divinity School, God's declaration is emphatic in the Hebrew construction. Now I behold, behold, I establish my covenant. The covenant obligation rests with the Lord alone, who has determined not to de devastate repeatedly the earth's inhabitants with floodwaters, despite man's continued sinfulness. Both the covenant and its sign have their origins in the Lord. They are my covenant and my bow. Now look at the varying verb tenses that God uses in verses 9, 11, and 17. In verse 9, he says, I will I establish. In verse 11, he says, I will establish. In verse 17, he says, I have established. We're looking at an everlasting covenant. And the prophet Joseph Smith references this and what we refer to as the Joseph Smith translation in Genesis 9, 21 through 25. And I would encourage you to go read that for some more information. 
According to Dr. Matthews, three things are said of the sign and covenant in verse 12. First, the sign is attached to the covenant promise. Its purpose is to confirm ritually what has been committed by word. Second, this is the Lord's doing I'm making, he said. And third, the sign marks a universal covenant between me and you and for every living creature with you, end quote. The covenants we make are often accompanied by signs and tokens. The rainbow was the sign of the Noahic covenant. Circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Sacrifice and Sabbath keeping were the signs of the Mosaic covenant. And baptism and sacrament are signs of the covenants we entered into with Jesus Christ. As Latter-day Saints, when we see the rainbow, we can be reminded of all the covenants that we have made with our Heavenly Father and Savior, Jesus Christ. I know I'm going to mess this guy's name up, but I'm going to give it a try. Elder Paul E. Koaliker of the First Quorum of the Seventy, in a talk given in the October 2005 General Conference, says, quote, giving careful attention to covenant making is critical to our eternal salvation. Covenants are agreements we make with our Heavenly Father in which we commit our hearts, minds, and behavior to keeping the commandments defined by the Lord. As we are faithful in keeping our agreement, his covenants or promises to bless us ultimately with all that he has, end quote. All right, now we're going to jump forward to the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, but we will come back and look at a few other important themes in Noah's story before we finish today. The only way to reach heaven is by following Jesus Christ. The Come Follow Me manual states, the account of the people of Babel building a tower provides an interesting contrast to the account of Enoch and his people building Zion, which class members studied last week. Both groups of people were trying to reach heaven, but in different ways. Twice in Genesis 9, the Lord told the people to multiply and replenish the earth, but they didn't scatter. The bulk of the population moved to an area known as Shinar, probably somewhere near modern-day Iraq. Now, if you look at the text in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1, let's see, 1 through 9, I want you to notice the verse 5. First thing I want you to notice that right smack dab in the middle of this passage, the first five words of verse 5 are, and the Lord came down. Boom. Despite our best efforts, our most brilliant engineering and planning, we can't get to heaven unless the Lord comes down. Our best efforts can't get us into heaven, and we can't get there unless the Lord comes down. And he did that when he was born in Bethlehem as Jesus. Quoting Elder Ladd again, quote, the most important thing we can do, young or old, is develop a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If we do, we will always be comfortable with ourselves. Any questions of self-esteem and self-worth will diminish, and we will have a quiet confidence that will see us through any trial. End quote. And I want to add my testimony to this truth. The story of, the no of Noah and the Tower of Babel will always hold a special place in my memory. It features prominently in a significant moment in my conversion story. 
I had studied the history and theology of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for many years before I joined the church. Eventually, I decided that that's what I needed to do. But I struggled for months on how to do it. I was a pastor. My wife was adamantly opposed to me joining the church. I had no confidence at all about moving forward. Then one, say I was, one Sunday, I was preaching on this very text, the story of the Tower of Babel. As I was preaching on this text, a voice exploded in my head. I told you to go. Now go. Normally, the spirit whispers in that still small voice, but on occasion, he shouts. And this is one of those times when he shouted. The voice struck me with such force that I felt like I couldn't breathe. The words continued to reverberate in my head. I was still preaching. I could hear words coming out of my mouth, but I have no idea what they were. Evidently, they made sense because no one seemed to notice what was going on. I knew in that moment that the Lord was telling me it was time to resign. It was time to go. And long story short, I went. I resigned. The very next Sunday, I resigned. If you want to know the details of how everything worked out, read my book, Crossing the Divide, published by Cedar Fort, of course. How's that for a shameful plug? Now let's turn to verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Now, the way this comes across in English, it appears the Lord is intimidated by the power of the people, but that is not the case. This verse is more akin to the language of Genesis 3, 22 through 24, where the Lord expels Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden to keep them from eating of the tree of life and living forever in their sins. If the people in Genesis 11 did not scatter, they would eventually devolve into the corruption and violence of Genesis 6. The scattering was necessary to prevent that from happening. The scattering of the people was an essential part of God's plan. God is a God of diversity. He wanted diverse ethnicities and diverse cultures to evolve, and he wanted to gather these diverse groups into his kingdom. For seed to grow and reach its fullest potential, it has to be scattered over a field. If you just dump it into a pile in the middle of the field, most of that seed's going to rot. It's going to die. But if you scatter it, it has the opportunity to reach its greatest potential. God wasn't worried about the people building a tower for his sake. He was worried about them for our sake. Before the gathering could take place, a scattering had to take place. And that gathering was essential to our salvation. And we're going to look at the gathering theme next. Notice how chapter 11 ends with the birth of Abram and the establishment of his family. And there's such a beautiful symbolism in this. The people of Babel were scattered much to their own chagrin. But now that the people have been scattered, the gathering can begin. And it does begin with the birth of Abram. There's a principle here. Sometimes the Lord has to move us. He has to put us in uncomfortable places, places that we do not want to go, so that his plans for us can be fulfilled. If the people of Babel had not scattered, there would have been no Abram, there would have been no Moses, there would have been no Jaredites in the new world, and there would have been no Jesus. In the scattering itself, God sets in motion the plan for his gathering. Genesis 17.5 calls Abram the father of many nations. Not just the tribes of Israel, but many nations. 
Every person that places their faith in Jesus Christ is a spiritual son or daughter of Abraham. Every member of the church, through their patriarchal blessing, can learn the specific tribe of Israel that they are descended through. God initiated the gathering of his children with Abraham, but it was the work of Jesus and then the Holy Spirit that really sent the gathering into overdrive. Many scholars look at the outpouring of the Holy Ghost in Acts 2 as the official reversal of Babel. One scholar wrote, quote, Luke's report of the founding of the church at Pentecost has been interpreted by some commentators as an intentional echo of Genesis 10 and 11. If so, by the outpouring of the Spirit, the human family again becomes one people, and language no longer is an impossible barrier. The Spirit does not give one language, but numerous dialects by which the gospel is heard. Pentecost shows the natural distinctions, the national distinctions, are secondary to the union of a single people by the baptism of the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit in Christ, rather. The gospel, therefore, is the reconciling antidote to the plurality that we find in Babel. The theme of gathering also occurs in the story of Noah and the ark. Noah gathers his family, the animals, and their food into the ark. In our day, Jesus, through the influence of the Holy Ghost and the guidance of his prophets, gathers his family into his ark, the Church of Jesus Christ. Some scholars see the blessing of Noah's son Japheth in 927 as a reference to the gathering. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. It was through Shem's line that Abraham would be descended, and of course the Savior. Some medieval Jewish scholars saw this verse as a reference to the time when Gentile proselytes would be gathered to a restored Israel as Isaiah envisioned in Isaiah 66, 19 through 20. Quoting Dr. Matthews again, the scripture envisions a single people of God without suppressing the national entities that make up that spiritual citizenry. The prophets speak of diverse ethnic personalities when they depict the future kingdom of God. At Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit upon the representative nations gathered in Jerusalem results in the spiritual union of the new church, but does not create a homogeneous language, ethnicity, or statehood. John's vision of the heavenly family includes diverse peoples from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. For all this to happen, it was imperative that the people scatter, and that's what happened in Genesis 11. Now, the title of this section of the Come, Follow Me lesson was, The Only Way to Reach Heaven is by Following Jesus Christ. We, can, we can't really leave this section without taking a little time to discuss the atonement. So that's what we'll do next. In Genesis 6, 6, it says this verse, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. What does it mean that it repented the Lord. Well, the word grieved in the second part of the verse gives us a hint. Repented here translates the Hebrew word nochem. The origin of the root seems to reflect the idea of breathing deeply, hence a physical display of one's feelings, usually sorrow. The idea of grief is compounded by the presence of the word, of the word atzab, or grieved, as the second part of the verse. 
Asab means to hurt, to be in pain, to grieve, to displease, or vex. The Hebrew uses a different word for repentance when applied to someone repenting from sin. So God is not repenting in the same way we think of repentance. He is grieved. He is sad. He's hurt. Here it is important to remember the meaning of Noah's name, to comfort. Not only did Noah comfort his father and his family, his walk comforted the Lord as well. Now that's a heavy thought. We often think of the Lord as comforting us. After all, another word for the Spirit is the, the comforter. But are there times when we comfort him? What does it mean to comfort the Lord, and how can we do that? In Christ, we see God so moved by grief over mankind's sin and his outpouring of love for us that he sends his Son to take upon himself the very suffering of our sins. Just as in the story of the Tower of Babel, the most important part is when the Lord comes down. Noah is a prefiguring of Christ who will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our sins. Also, notice the first thing that Noah did when he got off the ark. He built an altar and offered a burnt offering. The burnt offering was a blood offering given in the Mosaic Covenant as a voluntary offering for sin and as an act of thanksgiving and worship. Noah's first act was to make atonement for his people. And notice it's not that Noah's works of righteousness gain him salvation, for none is cited. Rather, his character and his walk with God are what's important. There's another fun theme, well, maybe not fun, but important theme that is found in Genesis. The next one I want to look at is persevering through trials. Genesis 7.12 says, and the rain was upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, anytime you see the number 40 in the scripture, it means testing. 40 is a number that symbolizes testing in the scriptures. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was in the desert for 40 days. Anytime you see that number 40, you should think this is a test. Noah undergoes several trials and tests in these chapters. Walking with God and preaching the gospel to unbelieving, even mocking neighbors, was a test. Building an ark was certainly a test. What did Noah know about shipbuilding? Building a boat on dry land miles from any ocean was certainly a test. And of course, getting on the ark was a test. Imagine what Noah and his family must have felt when God shut that door. Imagine what it must have felt like the first time the arch lurched forward in the current of the water, the tossing and the turning. It rained for 40 days and nights. The water continued for 150 days. If you do the math, though, Noah was in the ark for one year and 11 days. Someone once said, when troubles come, they advance swiftly, but retreat slowly. Imagine being on that ark for a year. Imagine the worry. Imagine the smell. And notice in the scriptures, there is no record of God communicating with Noah during that entire period, there is no record of God communicating with Noah while he was on the ark. Remember, when we, in our, when we are in our deepest and darkest places and the Lord stops speaking, it can be very scary and can be very frustrating. Now, Noah was perfectly safe. He was in the center of God's will. 
but things on that ark had to be tough. Don't think that just because God is silent that he doesn't love you or he doesn't care about you. He does. He's there. He hasn't forgotten you. Remember Genesis 8.1, but the Lord remembered. That wasn't the sign of God with a faulty memory. That was covenant language. You have made covenants with God and he is bound by them. And in his good time, he will act on them for your benefit. Last April, I was in a horrible car accident. Somebody ran a stop sign. I had 12 broken ribs, a broken pelvis, a broken arm, and a broken neck. Could have easily been paralyzed or killed. After I got out of the hospital, I posted about my injuries on Facebook. In a comment, someone wrote just two words, but God. I had all these horrible injuries, but God remembered and he was faithful to me, and he will be to you as well. Remember the story of the prophet Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. He and his brethren were in that jail for four months. Conditions were deplorable and discouraging, so much so that the prophet cried out, Oh, Lord, or I'm sorry, the prophet cried out, Oh, God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? And the Lord's reply, My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. And then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. That could have easily just been the Lord's reply to Noah in the ark. Or the patriarch Joseph in jail. Or you in the trial that you find yourself in right now. Sometimes trials come as a result of our sin. And we should always examine ourselves to make sure we didn't bring that trouble upon ourselves. Trials are often brought upon by other people's sins. Noah's trial was in part because of other people's sins. And that is another lesson the story teaches us. Our actions affect other people. Other sins, our sins, affect other people. Even the very creation of God. God didn't just wipe out the humans. He wiped out everything that couldn't swim. But Noah's trial was also a part of God's sovereign plan. If your trials are the consequence of your own sin, repent and allow the Lord to pull you out of the miry pit. But also remember that it is possible to be in the exact center of God's will and still undergo some fierce trials. Trials are a part of our existence on this earth. When they come, do not get discouraged. When the time is fully come, God will act. He will deliver you. Someone once said, everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Well, we're coming to the end of this podcast. Let's look at one more theme that reveals in this story, the importance of family. In Genesis 7-1, it says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Noah's family was saved because of Noah's relationship with God, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just and man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God, Genesis 6, 8 through 9. 
Genesis 6, 18, but with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with them. The Hebrew tradition of family solidarity explains why Noah's righteousness benefited his whole family. We see this idea in the New Testament as well. Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. To be sure, it is necessary for each person to enter into individual covenants with the Lord to be saved or exalted. But there are tremendous blessings family members receive just by being a member of the family. You might be the only member in your family. And there are blessings that your family receives because you are a member of the church. There are blessings your family receives because you have made covenants with God. Noah's family received their blessings because of God's covenant with Noah. That's what makes Ham's sin in Genesis 9 so grave. A lot has been written about why Ham and his son were cursed by Noah. And we're not going to look into all those situations. There are several theories. But in my mind, the clearest implication of the text is that Ham disrespected his father. Let me quote Dr. Matthews again. Ham's sin assailed the principal underpinning of family stability by defaming the father. Ham ridiculed the old man's downfall in the ancient world. One's parents, insulting one's parents, was a serious matter that warranted the extreme penalty of death. Unquote. We see that in the Old Testament as well, in the codes, in the law, even to Moses, that disrespecting your parents, disrespecting your father, insulting them, assaulting them, can be penalized by death. But what begs the question, then, why was Canaan cursed and not just Ham? The implication is that Canaan would repeat his father's sin. It must be noted that by the time of Moses, many of the Canaanites had degenerated into barbaric tribes that included human sacrifice in their practices. It could well be that the writer of Genesis included Canaan as the recipient of this curse to explain how those people had come to be so cruel and to help justify the conquest of Canaan. Family is also portrayed in the context of procreation. The phrase, be fruitful and multiply, occurs three times during the Noahic story. It is through procreation that Abraham and ultimately the Messiah would come, as well as the other spirits destined to inhabit this earth. This command is especially contrasted in Genesis 9, 6 through 7, where the Lord starts by talking about people shedding blood. He says, whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall be, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. In contrast to the murderer who terminates life, Noah's family is commissioned to propagate and celebrate life. Psalm 127.3 says, children are a heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the room is his reward. For both Adam and Eve, children are the universal evidence of the Lord blessing his creation. So there you have it, the major themes of Genesis 6 through 11. Follow the prophet. Tokens or symbols help us remember our covenants with the Lord. The only way to reach heaven is by following Jesus Christ. Atonement, gathering, persevering through trials, and the importance of family. There are many other themes which we could have looked at, including the dangers of sin, the sovereignty of God, the recreation of the world, uh, conservation. 
uh, Hebrew wordplay on names. And I also like to speculate about a connection between the story of Noah and Halloween, as well as maybe an explanation for the source of Cain and Seth's wives. I'd be happy to discuss some of these ideas in the comments if you'd like. Feel free to ask any questions you'd like. In conclusion, as we navigate the storms of life, remember to follow the prophet, to make and keep your covenants, to cultivate your relationship with Jesus Christ, and someday your testimony will include the words, but God remembered me. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Brought to you by Cedar Fort Publishing and Media. Thousands of people are baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints every week. In many ways, Brian Reddy's story is no different than any other convert except that Brian was an ordained Southern Baptist pastor with a formal theological education. He firmly believed that Joseph Smith was a false prophet. In 1979, Brian and his mother were driving home from a fireside featuring members of the Osman family. He had listened to their testimonies of the gospel of Jesus Christ and was impressed. He turned to his mother and said, Mom, I want to be a Mormon. Her answer was a firm and adamant no. Over the next 35 years, Brian became a committed follower of Jesus Christ and a staunch anti-Mormon. But then things changed. His heart began to soften as he opened his mind to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. His faith would face the ultimate test of conviction to quit his ministry and seek baptism. Crossing the Divide, From Baptist to Latter-day Saint Written by Brian Reedy Find it at cedarfort.com